Good morning and welcome to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. You're talking to myself, Jaime, and to Carol this morning. Carol, how are you? Hi, good morning. Try that again, Carol. Hello. Oh, yeah, that's Sounds much better. better. Okay. I think the levels were a bit low. And what's happening this morning, Carol? Um, oh, we've got an exciting week ahead. We've got a wonderful guest in the studio this morning, and I'm looking forward to chatting to her. And who's our guest this our morning? Our guest this morning is Rosie Ween. Rosie's the CEO of an NGO called WaterAid, and we'll hear a lot more about what they do in a minute. Okay, well, so we're going to learn a bit about water, which is great. All right, so before we're going to just listen to our first selection for today, and that is Silvio Rodriguez, uh, an artist who's very close to my heart. Yes, we're not in Cuba, we're uh, in Hatfield and the, sh- the radio station is Northwest FM. The show is Mad Village and this morning our guest is uh, Rosie Ween who e- works for WaterAid. Good morning, Rosie, how are you? Good morning, Jaime, I'm very well, thank you and excited to be here. And Rosie, can you tell us a little bit about that track we, we just heard? Mm, I love Silvio Rodriguez, I love his music and his poetry. Um, the song was Al Final de Este Viaje, uh, and for me, whenever I listen to his music, it just, uh, I find it very relaxing and takes me to a very reflective place. It was a beautiful track, and thank you for that choice. Now, Rosie, uh, you're, amongst many other things, the CEO of WaterAid. Can you tell us a bit about the organisation and what you do, please? WaterAid is an extraordinary organisation. We're a not-for-profit organisation and we're focused on changing people's lives through getting access to something that many of us take for granted, access to safe drinking water, decent toilets and good hygiene practices. And we do this because we know with those things it really can transform people's lives. Are you an international organisation? Yeah, we are an international organisation. We work in over 30 countries. So here in Australia, we focus on uh, Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Do you have any projects actually in Australia or are they all offshore? Uh, all of our um, programming work is in overseas. Uh, we do a lot of work in Australia, advocacy with the government, a lot of fundraising and awareness activities, particularly with the water industry. And that's actually where we came from. So WaterAid was started back in the early 80s by a group of engineers and they were travelling in Africa and South Asia. And as they travelled, they saw the huge impact it had on people's lives, not having access to water. And they really thought that it's just not, not good enough that people in developing countries don't have access to clean drinking water. And they came back to the UK and talked to other large development organisations and said, you know, that we really should have an organisation or an arm of an organisation focused on water and and everyone agreed and that was where WaterAid started. Uh, And in Australia, we followed a similar journey with a group of people from the water industry and development organisations in the decade that was called the decade of fresh water, of people coming together and realising that with people not having access to water and sanitation, um, it means that children die of diarrhoea, and diarrhoea is preventable 
through access to safe water, sanitation and hygiene, and yet it's incredibly prevalent. It's actually the second biggest killer of children after pneumonia in developing countries. Mm. And for those people that started WaterAid those many years ago, that was what drove them and it still drives us, the supporters and staff of WaterAid, to today. Yeah. Um, access or lack of access to clean water obviously affects different groups of people in different mm. ways. So who, who do you find are the most disadvantaged groups? As you say, it affects everyone and really holds back people's health, wealth and dignity. It particularly affects women. So water um, and sanitation, the lack of it, I think many of us can picture in our minds the long distances that women often have to walk. We see footages of that, particularly from sub-Saharan Africa, women having to walk many kilometres to collect water. So it's a real-time burden on women and girls um, who bear that burden. It also has many other effects on women. They're the ones often that are the caregivers when children or other family members are sick due to lack of water and sanitation. There was once, there's a case um, only a couple of years ago that was absolutely devastating to young girls in southern India that didn't have a toilet close to home. So they had to go to the toilet out in the fields um, and on their walk to defecate in those fields, they were raped and murdered. So it has an incredible impact on the women, the safety of women and girls around the world. And unfortunately, that case uh, isn't an isolated case Um I heard the producer of this fabulous Bollywood movie that's come out called A Love Story, A Toilet, A Love Story. Um, and he talked about the statistics of the reduction in rape and murder in India that would be achieved if there was um, universal access to sanitation. So women and girls are particularly impacted through the lack of water and sanitation and they can be particularly empowered when there is water and sanitation um, through the benefits that they get of more time. Uh, but also the process itself can be very empowering. Um, if I may tell a story of um, in East Timor, in Timor-Leste, uh, WaterAiders worked with our partners in government and with the education system of ensuring that there are toilets in a primary school which is on the southern coast of Timor-Leste in, in a very poor area in a small town. And through the process... Um, the water aid has worked with our partners to ensure that there are toilets now at the school and I was lucky enough to meet some of the girls that go to that school and they told me that now that there are toilets at that school, they can stay at school when they have their period. So many toilets in developing countries don't have toilets in them and that means that girls when they get their period, they drop out either because of shame or or because of just the practicalities of not being able to manage their periods or their parents don't let them go anymore because they're concerned about what might happen to the girls um, when they have their periods. And these girls now um, are staying in school and they told me how they're so excited that they can achieve their dreams. One of them wants to become a doctor, another um, wants to become a nurse. You know, they're able to finish their education 
And for me, the story went that one step further because these girls then were asked to go and speak on Menstrual Hygiene Day, which is your listeners may not know, but there is a special day of the year, which is Menstrual Hygiene Day in May, the 28th of May. Is that international? It's becoming international. Hopefully we can make it so, Carol. Um, and so these girls were invited to go to the capital of East Timor, Dili, um, and they were asked to speak about their experiences and we mustn't forget that in many countries, I think even in Australia, talking about your period in public is, you know, a bit, there's still a lot of stigma and taboo around it. And that's particularly so uh, in Timor-Leste. And these young girls, all of 15 or so, got up and spoke in front of this huge field of media, government, and talked about their periods, the shame that they'd had having to go to school and not have toilets and now the impact it had made on their lives. And it was quite phenomenal and shows that the process itself of involving girls and bringing out their full potential water and sanitation can have. It's an incredible story. And I'm imagining that the engineers who originally came up with the idea mm. of water aid didn't really see all the implications particularly the effect on women and girls no that's right I think it was very much in our early days very much focused on the infrastructure yep. and how we can make sure we can turn on taps and have water and as we've evolved over the years we've we've grown into having much broader impacts and also working in a much more um, sophisticated way from working on those projects, which we still do, but realising if we're going to have the impact we want, which is to achieve the sustainable development goals, and there is a goal, goal six, which is universal access to water, sanitation and hygiene. And if we're to achieve that, that means that the 884 million people that don't have access to water today and the over 2 billion people that don't have access to sanitation, if we're to achieve that, it's absolutely got to be a collaboration and a partnership. And WaterAid's very focused on on leveraging uh, impact. So, for example, in Papua New Guinea, where we've been working for about 14 years doing some amazing work with partners ensuring that there's water and sanitation in communities we're also working with local and national governments so that there are the policies in place and there's the people in place in government and the funding in place to ensure that everyone is access getting access to water and sanitation. That's mm, um, quite an achievement for a fairly small organisation because I was going to say that water infrastructure is very much a national government responsibility. So your main role, I guess, is being able to negotiate and do that leverage work, yeah? Yeah, it really is, Carol. Nothing that we do is alone. It's always in collaboration with others. So we're quite a small organisation with a really ambitious goal. So it's about how we can create a movement of people all focused on that and how we can leverage strengths from other organisations. For example, one of our partners that we work with is an organisation called CBM and they're really focused on um, people with disabilities um, achieving their rights and we do a lot of work with them to think about how we ensure that people with disabilities get access to water and sanitation um, when you were talking about the people most impacted by the lack of water and sanitation it's a huge impact on people with disabilities mm. if they don't get access to water and sanitation I remember meeting this young girl um, she must have been about 18 years of age living in the highlands of Papua New Guinea um, and she uh, 
had had no legs basically so for her to get around her home and the area that she lived in she had to crawl uh, and their family didn't have a particularly hygienic toilet and it was pretty dark and so people used to and the neighbors used to use it as well and they'd go in and they'd go to defecate they'd go to poo and they'd poo around the toilet and so for her to use that toilet she literally had to crawl through other people's poo and it's just an incredible impact on her health but also her dignity because it reinforced the stigmas around her so that people didn't want her in the home and so what a difference it made when she was able to get access to an accessible toilet that she could use with dignity and independence and it is of course a human right for everyone to have access to sanitation so it is for us a collective effort working with organizations like CBM working with governments and also working with the incredible water industry here in Australia and around the world to achieve Uh, work together. Mm. You're listening to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM, and our guest this morning is Rosie Ween, who's the CEO of Water Aid. Um, Rosie, I just wanted to see if you could perhaps paint us a bit of a picture of, I guess, water infrastructure mm. and sanitation access in in the world. You know, wh where are the hotspots? You know, where, and what's this overall situation? You talked a little bit about the 900 million people and the. Two million, two billion people who can't access mm. uh, sanitation. But tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. So when I look globally at the situation and what we can see from the statistics is that we are making progress, particularly around water. So we're seeing access to water infrastructure improve. Uh, there isn't enough focus on sanitation, though, and some of the big trends that we're seeing um, are cl obviously climate change. We know that climate change is really going to be felt in so many ways through water. Too much water, like we've seen in Hobart just mm. this weekend, yep. uh, water in the wrong places or not enough water, drought and so on. Um, and so what we're seeing is that we really need to focus on water infrastructure that's climate resilient uh, and climate change isn't something that's going to happen in the future it's happening right here and now so when we look at um, particularly communities in the Pacific and sub-Saharan Africa where they're not and then there's a lack of access to water they're even more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change and so we're seeing hotspots particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and the Pacific where actually coverage is going backwards rather than forwards because of sustainability issues. And around sanitation, the real hotspots are India and China where huge numbers of people lack access to sanitation and also in urban areas where we're seeing globally more and more people come to urban areas and the infrastructure just not able to cope. And particularly, again, for water aid um, and I think globally our focus should be on equality and people that are moving to urban areas and not able to uh, access the infrastructure they're living in slums and informal settlements where they're not getting the basic services that they need so say some of the key geographic areas but also some of the trends that we're seeing wow it's again so many it's such a complex and interrelated topic I mean you know we've talked about the impact on women, but also climate change is a huge mm -hmm. issue. And um, just wanted to, 
you know, a lot of people would say, you know, why, you know, it's raining more. You know, look, we we just got floods recently. I mean, but uh, it's understanding as well that some of those changes are in how it rains and how much we get and how much we can collect and things like that. Yeah, that's right. I've just come back from visiting India. And as I visited communities there and talked to them, I was in a rural area of central India and talking to a family and they had generations there. So they had, you know, the 80-year-old grandfather right through to the young people of today. And when they told their story of water and the changes that they had seen, of course there's been fluctuations, but never, you know, in the last uh, eight decades had they seen what they've got at the moment, which is their traditional ponds absolutely dried up. Um, And they're at the beginning of summer. So, of course, they often run out of water towards the end of summer but this was the beginning of summer and already seven of their nine water points had dried up and there was no water in their traditional ponds and they were doing what they could they'd changed their agriculture in the area to use less water thirsty crops and use crops for agriculture that didn't use as much water um, they'd prioritized water use for human consumption rather than previously they'd really prioritized livestock over people and they were also changing um, and each family had responsibility for a number of trees that were being planted around the local water catchment area to try and get uh, more plants into the area to to um, protect the water source. But these issues, of course, need bigger picture action from, from all of us, from governments right down to individuals so we can all um, change the impact that we're having on our environment. Does uh, water aid do anything related to agriculture as well and irrigation? Water aid focuses primarily on domestic water use, but Mm. it's obviously interrelated. So we partner a lot with organisations that are focused on bigger users of water, such as agriculture, but we don't ourselves work on that. We work on smaller scale um, agriculture, but making sure that the conversation is happening between the two. Of course. Mm. Now we're going to listen to your second selection, Rosie. I think this is um, Kelly Clarkson. Do you want to tell us a little bit now why you chose this song? Yeah, so from Silvia Rodriguez to Kelly Clarkson. Um, For me, the connection with Silvia is also personal. My husband um, is from, born in Peru and grew up in Venezuela. So that sort of, I love Spanish um, speaking music. Uh, For me, the Kelly Clarkson is also a personal collection. I, I was lucky enough to play in the most amazing soccer team in the world, the Brunswick Zebras, um, <laughs> yes. sometimes known as the Mighty Bras. Um, and Not this just is play. Rosie was the captain. <laughs> <laughs> and this is one of our, our team songs that was part of um, a team activity that we did. Beautiful. Let's play this. Yes. Thank you, Carol. The song's finished. Yes. Cut off guard once more. I don't know how I do it. (laughs) 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 All right, so that was uh, My My Life Would Suck suck Without You by Kelly Clarkson. I don't think I had ever heard that song before. Now your life has improved, hasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and uh, our guest this morning is Rosie Wynn from WaterAid. She's the CEO of WaterAid, and we've been talking to to her this morning. Um, Rosie, we we didn't ask you a little bit, uh, we didn't ask you about how you got into into this field of work and what you were doing before. Tell us a little bit about that. 
So I joined WaterAid some 14 years ago. My background is in education. I studied primary school teaching and languages, Spanish and Indonesian. Uh, and when I finished my degree, I suddenly realized I didn't want to have a linear career path. Um, and my dad actually helped me um, and spotted this great opportunity, which was for teachers that wanted to live and work in Southeast Asia. And he knew how much I love travel and other cultures. And he thought, you know, this would be perfect. And um, I applied and was lucky enough uh, to get a, a position with the Australian Volunteers International. Oh. And I was a volunteer in Indonesia for four years. Um, and that really set me on the career path of community development and international uh, development. Were you primarily teaching during that period? Yeah, I was. So I was all of uh, 21, just finished university. And I my first position was at a university in Kupang, the capital of West Timor in eastern Indonesia. And I was teaching students who wanted to become teachers uh, how to teach English. So I have to say I felt like a bit of a fraud I mean, just <laughs> out of university. I can still remember one of my first lectures um, where I thought, you know, teaching methodology that you use in Australia, understand the students' needs and wants and then create a learning experience for them. And so I asked the students at the beginning, you know, what would you like to learn uh, from me and what would, you know, what would you really like to do this semester? And there was silence for about 10 minutes. I kept trying to draw it out until one brave student put their hand up and said, that's your job to tell us what we need to learn. And for me, that was a real... Um, eye-opener around the culture of education and methodology there was very much that you the teacher hold all of the the knowledge so I, I learned I think more in those four years than perhaps I shared but I was teaching for two years at the university and then I moved to the most it's like my second home special place to me it's an island called Rote um, and it, it's um, quite a remote area and at that time to get there from Kupang was a, a four to five hour ferry journey then a depended on the road four hour bus journey um, to this village which you know the sort of group of villages there are about a thousand people there and when I was there some 20 years ago now um, there was no of course no mobile phones no internet and so if I needed to call home I had to catch a bus it's about an hour and a half two hour bus ride it was only one bus um, to call home, and but usually I'd just send letters. So it would take about three months for me to send a letter and to get a reply back from my parents. So it was quite a wild adventure for a couple of years, but the best, best thing I ever did. Wow, talk about growing up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it was a real, for me, you know, I learned a lot about life in those couple of years and also about myself and my resilience, but also my limitations. Um some of the perceptions around, even though I was, you know, in my early 20s and, and so quite young um, and a teacher, people just had this expectation as a, a foreigner that I would be good at things like um, medical skills. So I still remember the time when um, someone in a, a really remote area fell out of the, a, a lawn tar palm and had a, a a broken leg so his bone it's were actually sticking out of his leg so they brought him to me for me to um <laughs> assist him and wow. I was like no this is really well and truly beyond me you really need to to take him to a hospital um and I also learned an incredible amount from the women in that in that community and I um 
I had a lot of time on my hands because school was only in the morning. So I had all afternoon and evening to myself and of course no electricity. So it was very quiet. Um, and I learned to do backstrap weaving. And it was through a lot of those conversations um, that I learned a lot more about the issues that women faced, um, particularly around maternal and child health issues. The women there used to not only carry a lot of water, but also carry sand. So they'd collect sand from the beach and sell it to construction companies. Um, and I went to more funerals during that those two years than I've done for the rest of my life and um, a couple of them were for women that died in childbirth or babies um, that died after birth and it was really about that one of the key issues of course was nutrition but also um, the activities women did uh, while they were pregnant and so we looked at other income opportunities for women um, rather than collecting sand from the beach and so we started a small handicraft cooperative because there were many surfers I'm sorry to all the surfers that don't want me to give away the location of this amazing spot mm -hmm. um, but there were a lot of surfers it's a world-class surfing spot um, and they used to come and so it was a great opportunity because surfers are fabulous tourists to have in a community because um, they want to support the local community protect the local environment and so they were um, great consumers of these fabulous handicrafts so it still continues to this day not exactly how we set it up but um, women selling handicrafts uh, to these surfers so at some point you decided to return to australia Mm, I did. So I returned to Australia and had that passion for education, but also saw the barriers uh, that women and girls faced in accessing education. Um, and after another two years in Indonesia, I um, then came back again to Australia and WaterAid was just starting. At that time, I had a, a brand new baby and didn't want to be traveling um, so I hang on a second because yeah. we need to find out where <laughs> you picked up a Peruvian Venezuelan husband ah, along the way. Jaime, that story. <laughs> so I, in one of, when I was back in Australia for a period, I was working remotely in okay. Melbourne um, for the Australian Council for International Development, and it was a bit lonely working from home. Um, and so I used to visit my favourite cafe. I love coffee, and um, there was this lovely barista there oh. who yeah was in Australia studying English Alberto um and so yeah I managed to have more than coffee have more than coffee yes although it did take me a little while to get his attention and in the end it was my friend's beautiful Labrador puppy that helped because I brought her in and finally he talked to me about more than just coffee so yeah that was there you a go. great day of my life beautiful Okay, so now now that we know you a bit better, we can actually go back to WaterAid. <laughs> back to WaterAid. So, yeah, so I was looking to... But I guess that yeah. that actually um, illustr illustrates a lot the, the knowledge that you have about all different aspects of, uh, of development work and, and, and even that in interrelation and how actually people can live in some of those communities. And obviously every community is going to be different, but some of the issues might be quite similar. So I imagine that has helped you a lot. Yeah, it really has given me that grounded experience of, um, as you say, the interconnectedness, but also it's given me a really 
grounded experience of the possibilities and the strength of communities. As you say, all communities are different, but something that's the same is people and people wanting to uh, change their lives and the lives of others. So that's a strength I always draw on and it always gives me cause for optimism and hope for what we can do together. One of my favourite quotes is from Margaret Mead, um, a quote that is, never doubt that a small group of citizens can change the world because indeed that all it ever has and that's one of the things that really drives the way that I work and think about the world. How many people do you have working for What are Aid now? Um, globally we're a thousand, in Australia and our countries uh, we're a hundred people. So it's a, quite a large organization in some ways. Yep. And yeah, I imagine as well, so you you, you said before there's a lot of partnership work mm. um, and you work I imagine with lots of governments. Um, so I it gives you the opportunity to work at so many different levels on the ground and then sort of that stakeholder management and all of that. So tell us a bit about how that works. So we work, as you say, at all different levels um, and key for us where the change is going to happen in the world is actually at district um, and local government level. So in the countries that we work, we make sure that there's the national framework so that there's the policies in place but really where change happens and where delivery a lot of services is is at local and district government level so we do a lot of work building capacity so that they can deliver what they want to never really have I gone anywhere in the world and you meet with people and they don't want to be doing their their job well um, so we really try to enable that and then we do a lot of work in Australia with the Australian government to ensure that they keep a focus on water and sanitation in our international aid budget. In, a, in our ever-shrinking international aid budget you mean? Yeah it's a real concern <laughs> that Australia is stepping away. We used to be such an extraordinary role model and leader in the region and globally uh, and unfortunately we are stepping away from that as we've seen in the latest budget. You say that most people are really wanting to do a good mm. job, but um, allocation of resources and building of infrastructure is a highly political sphere of activity. How do you negotiate those very delicate and difficult negotiations? And, and I'm sure you come across corruption and people who are not that keen on mm. doing a good job as well. Yeah, absolutely, <clears throat> Carol. Um, we... In terms of priorities and trying to trigger um, a focus on water and sanitation, sometimes it's delicate and sometimes we have to be very forthright. And um, so, for example, in Papua New Guinea, uh, as part of the process uh, to ensure that there was national focus on water and sanitation, we had a national conference and we invited the health minister to come along at the end. Um, and I was nominated to be the one that um, gave a small speech to him uh, and drew it back to his community where he came from and the struggles that we'd heard him talk about publicly that his mother used to have. And the the climax of my speech was for me to hand him a plastic poo and to say to him, this is what's killing your people in Papua New Guinea and we had the statistics on how many children died and there were three national television stations there filming that. So that was one example where we weren't always delicate and we were quite you know, positively confrontational and he then made a statement that every house should build a toilet before it builds you know, a home and it it gave some of that political um, will 
for there now to be a national water and sanitation policy. We also recognise that there is corruption in all countries in the world. And so we do a lot of work as well with communities around social accountability and citizen um, scorecards. So for example, in East Timor, we have a really great framework that our local partners do that maps out where has government funding being allocated and how has it been spent. And there's a national sharing of that data so that we can really hold government and the private sector to account and we sit um, on a working group that reports to the Prime Minister on uh, public spending, on infrastructure, more than just water. Mm. So I think, as you say, we've got to be watching both sides, creating that political momentum, getting resources allocated, then making sure that they're spent in the way that's intended. So you, uh, you've developed quite an extensive skill set that goes beyond being a teacher, haven't you, <laughs> by necessity? I love learning. And, of course, I don't do all of this myself. I've got an extraordinary team. It has always been one of my philosophies, Carol, of to learn and grow. And one of the reasons why I just love working in an organisation like WaterAid is that there are so many opportunities for personal growth and, and learning about other areas. Mm. So... We've been talking about water, but uh, we've also been talking about the connections between water and feminism, if you want, or Mm -hmm. gender equality. We've been talking about water and climate change. We've been talking about water and governance and corruption and and how people organize themselves. And I think there's another link there which I would like to explore, which is employment and and how people make a living and develop. just anything that you may have to comment on that. Absolutely. We know that um, having water and sanitation is also key for livelihoods. So from <laughs> as we made the links to women, it's often key for livelihoods for women from small-scale agriculture to other opportunities. We know that um, for every dollar invested in water and sanitation at a government level, there's a um, $5 dollar return so there's huge links between water and sanitation we're doing some really um, interesting work in southeast asia with partnering with garment factories and looking at the links of the importance of water and sanitation in factories but also in the um the workers homes so that they have access to to water and sanitation as well so there's absolutely huge impacts in terms of economic benefits nationally but also um, for communities and households all right so it's time for another music break uh, our guest this morning is rosie Wynn from water aid and we're going to listen to another track and she can explain to us why she played this this ad always makes me exhausted <laughs> <laughs> um before that we listened to a track called inside my kitchen tell us a little bit more about that rosie this track was one of my favourite bands in the world, Titters, which is a, a, a group of Aboriginal women, three Aboriginal women. Um, and I discovered them when I was at university in Canberra and I was lucky enough just last week to hear them and Archie Roach uh, play a concert. And I think it's just the most beautiful music. Again, it's got that poetry and, and messages around uh Aboriginal stories and pride, but also community and sisterhood and solidarity. So I just, I love it. It's beautiful. Thank you for selecting it too, Rosie. Really enjoyed it. Now, we were just speaking off air before. We can perhaps resume the conversation now. I was asking how much you spend 
travelling away from home in this job? Yeah, so in this role I spend probably about eight weeks of the year travelling. It's obviously really important that I visit the countries where we work and are fabulous people and partners and the communities that we serve. And then I also travel a little, little bit interstate, uh, meeting many of our wonderful supporters. In my previous roles at WaterAid, um, I travelled a little bit more. And Rosie, are, are there any countries that uh, you, you think are particu particularly sort of exemplary in their the transformation of the water and sanitation over the last few years? Oh, there's lots. Let me talk about one that I haven't spoken about um, as yet, and that's Cambodia. Uh, so Cambodia has been one of the countries that's the most off track, but we're seeing now in a lot of the statistics that they're one of the ones that has made the most progress, particularly in terms of people getting access to sanitation. And again, it's due to a collaboration. The government has um, really set some ambitious goals. So globally, the goal is to get to universal access to water and sanitation by 2030. The Cambodian government's decided that they want universal access by 2025. Um, and at the moment, they, they are making progress. There still needs to be a bit more of a... Um, a step change in their progress but there there's a huge movement there around sanitation marketing and, and real behavior change which is what san getting people to use toilets is behavior change is central and we're seeing some some great progress in cambodia what are some of the main diseases that are related to bad sanitation i imagine malaria i mean yeah the impacts of bad sanitation particularly it's diarrhea um and also what we're discovering more and more is it's always not necessarily those acute diarrheal episodes or episode outbreaks of typhoid or cholera some of the longer term impacts of having the mild diarrhea is it um really impacts on the gut of mm. children so that as they grow, no matter what they eat, they're not absorbing the nutrients. Yep. So it's either coming straight out of them um, or nothing is being absorbed. And that really impacts on their growth. So we see a lot of stunted children, but also impacts on their mental abilities, their ability to concentrate in school. So it's got generational impacts. And we, in our region, countries like Cambodia and Timor-Leste have some of the worst stunting uh, rates in the world. Wow. What about uh, the links between all of your work and breastfeeding as well? Uh, I was just thinking I need to talk about maternal <laughs> and child health because you're absolutely right, Jaime. So obviously for breastfeeding, it's so important um, if women can't breastfeed and they give them formula that they use drinking water, clean drinking water for that. What we know also from studies in Africa is women face a threefold greater risk of dying in childbirth if there isn't water and sanitation, mm. and that's due um, to infections. We also know that there's um, increased risk of babies dying from sepsis if there isn't water and sanitation uh, for them in those important early moments and days in life so we've done a lot of work um, globally and again in Cambodia is a great example where we've worked with the Department of Health to look at their framework for how they assess a, a healthcare centre and historically they've looked at key things around people that they've got and say that there's electricity but they've never checked is there water are there toilets so can you imagine going to a hospital and not mm -hmm. being able to have a glass of water 
to take a tablet. Um, have, can you imagine giving birth in a hospital where there's no water for the midwife <coughs> to wash her hands or his hands? There's no toilet for, for you to use um, after giving birth. Yeah. And also, again, those people with the typhoid and the cholera just basically going yep. to the toilet anywhere. I mean, yep. yeah. Yep, that's Not right. Not to the toilet, in fact. <laughs> yep, yep, that's right. So it's a, a huge issue um, and an area where we know that healthcare workers want to be able to offer, you know, safe delivery and work in an environment that's safe for them and for their patients. So you do you also work quite closely with some of those health organisations, I imagine? Yeah, yeah, very closely, globally with the WHO, but also with local healthcare providers. In Cambodia, we're doing a campaign with midwives um, where they're campaigning to ensure that they have water and sanitation in their workplaces so that they can do their jobs and save lives. Wow. This is um, it's almost like an eye-opening thing. You know, you, you never think too much about these things. For us, it's so basic. Yeah, that's But right. We were talking before about packing children's lunches. Jaime <laughs> right. and I just swapping stories. And can you imagine packing your lunch for your child and sending them off to a school where there is no water and sanitation? Mm -hmm. We just don't even think about it. Yeah, they do complain about the toilets, the kids, because they say they're pretty disgusting. But <laughs> they're a, it's a different yeah. level. <laughs> it gives you a different perspective, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, wow. That's... Um, Just remarkable. It's yeah, quite blown away by this whole thing. I, I just wanted to touch um, a little bit more on, on climate change because I think, obviously, it's a huge issue as well. And, you know, some people are saying we're starting to see the, the first um, climate refugees. And, I mean, we know that th there are so many areas of the world where mm. there's increased pressure. Does your organization, I guess, have almost like an arm that deals, deals pretty much with climate change? We have both. So we do have some of our key people that work on some of those big policy issues around climate change and ensuring that there's the thinking of about impacts on water um, in that. We also, though, it just has to be throughout all of our organization and all of our thinking internally about as individuals in an organization, how are we impacting on the climate and also externally with all of our work. As I say, it's not a reality for the future. As you said, it's happening right now. So in all of our work, we're thinking about the impacts of climate change. And related to that, I wanted to ask you about another question as well. Um, water collection. So rainwater tanks and collection mm. systems, is that something that you are quite active on? Again, it's one of those it depends answers. So, for example, in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, in the Torricelli Mountains, where they get two metres of rainfall every year, it's a really sustainable, fairly reliable source of water and acceptable sure. by the community. In some other parts of the world where there's less predictable or there's less of sort of rainfall throughout the year we don't do it as much so it depends on the community um, beliefs but also on what's a sustainable water source often it's a mix so we might have some rainwater tanks say in a school but also have that supplemented for the drier months through another source i'm thinking as well about the links between water and energy mm -hmm. i just wanted to ask you i mean Uh, do you also have any interactions with with power projects? Or th Because I'm, I was also thinking about what you said, the biggest killer in the world, the big, biggest killer of children is uh, pneumonia. Mm. Um, and one of the reasons for that is lack of oxygen. And I was thinking of a friend of mine, Roger Rasul, who um, is a physicist at Melbourne Uni. And they won one of those projects from the Bill and Melinda, Melinda Gates. Gates Foundation. 
Um, and what they are doing at the moment is they have developed a system that uses, a, I think it's a two meter waterfall uh, to actually produce oxygen. Anyway, I was just thinking about mm. As you said, there's intersections with everything and there's huge intersections around energy, particularly around how people might um, fuel. So burning a lot of um, wood can often impact on respiratory issues. We've done work, for example, in India where I just visited, they have biogas mm-hmm. um, where they get the um, poo from animals or, and also toilets uh, and use that to create fuel um for for families as well um but also we do again it's one of those areas where we might partner with a group that's doing work on solar power uh, and work together in in a community beautiful Mm. rosie you see some fairly depressing sights in your work i imagine Mm. how do you maintain your positive outlook which you certainly have (laughs) yeah i'm a huge believer in self-care and for me i often take that um what they say to you on the plane, uh, you know, you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you help others. Uh, help others, uh, and as um, I believe in that, and for me, that's about surrounding myself with people and strong relationships, and also exercise um, is a big one for me. Plus music. Well, I, I aim into that. <laughs> now we're very, very quickly running out of time and I'm just uh, conscious as well that from now on we have another show uh, at 10 o'clock right after us so we have to be really uh, ensure that we finish on time but I, we just want to thank you for your you know, just taking the generosity of taking a whole hour of your time to talk to us. That's fantastic. We've learned a lot today. It's a and pleasure. Thank you for having me. And we're going to leave our audience with your last selection which again is a track that I could have chosen myself. Uh, Bob Marley uh, what's what's the relevance for you? As I said, for me, there's music and I think around think about your mindset and really keeping yourself positive. And so for me, I often use music as a way and this song for me is one that's just full of positivity and, and makes me smile. Beautiful. All right, Thank so you. we will see, see you all next week.